Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Yang Lor to tell us all his about his fascinating book titled Unequal Choices, How Social Class Shapes Where High-Achieving Students Apply to College. It's just come out in 2023 from Rutgers University Press and helps us understand the differences between students that might look on paper to be academically similarly achieving, right? Very clever, maybe going to the same universities and colleges. But actually, quite often, it turns out, um, students make different decisions about where they think they want to go to university, where they think they can go to university, um, impacted in a lot of ways by social class. So Yang, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to help us understand what's going on. Uh, Thank you for having me, Miranda. I'm very excited to talk about my new book uh, and share Uh, some of my findings with you and the rest of your audience. I'm very excited for that too. Um, But before we get too excited and dive right into the findings, uh, would you mind starting us off a little bit, introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Okay, thank you for that. So uh, my name is Yang Lor, and I'm currently an assistant teaching professor at the University of California, uh, Merced, one of the newest universities, the the newest University of California institution. Um, and so I've been here for four years and I, I decided to write this book as part of my dissertation um, because I've always been interested in issues around uh, social class. Uh, I myself am a first generation college student. Um, so I've been interested in issues around um, you know, how does social class affect the way that we prepare for college? How does it affect our experiences while we are in college? Um, and so as I was finishing my master's paper uh, I came across a very uh, prominent uh, research paper at that time. This was back in 2014. A couple of economists, uh, Hoxby and Avery, actually came out with this paper that was widely cited uh, by the by the popular media. So New York Times, CNN, everyone was talking about it. And the key finding from their paper was that there are actually quite a, a good amount of low-income students who are high-achieving. Like, these students have the credentials to get into the top universities. Uh, and this is this goes against this notion that the reason why we don't have uh, as many low-income students uh, at these elite colleges in the United States is because uh, we don't have enough of them. And so this paper really made the case that there are actually a good amount of them, and they're not applying to these top colleges. Um, but as economists, they tend to emphasize... Um, explanations that center on information. Uh, it's a lack of information. It's a lack of recruitment. 
uh, that's leaving behind these high achieving low income students. Uh, myself as a sociologist, we like to look at the structure. How does um, how does your social position? Um, what are some of the barriers that get in the way? Right, so I feel like as a sociologist, uh, perhaps I can also intervene in this conversation uh, and help provide a fuller uh, explanation of the mechanisms behind uh, this type of inequality. Thank you for giving us that context. I think it's a really useful way to sort of think about the contribution that the book is making. Um, and sort of on that point, kind of obviously from that answer, the fact that this study was picked up in places like the New York Times and CNN, the paper that also caught your attention, um, it's clear that this is considered kind of an important topic by some people. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about kind of why you, from a sociological position, from having done this work, why you think it's important to understand, to piece together this decision-making process that students undertake um, for where they want to go to higher education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the, um, you know, one of the key issues for a lot of research is that um, there's a lot of data out there. And so typically, we're able to, as researchers, we're able to make associations between uh, students' background and their outcomes. The hardest part, I would say, is often trying to figure out the mechanism. So what's what's operating here? So we know that, uh, you know, low-income students, uh, first-generation college students are less likely to apply to these top universities even when their credentials uh, make them very competitive applicants. Um, and so as a sociologist, we often focus on mechanisms. Um, and, and so I, I think it's so important to, to understand this, this process um, so that we, you know, if we want to intervene policy-wise, uh, our, our policies are geared towards uh, making sure that students um, apply to these top colleges. Um, and, and so I, I think understanding where people apply to college um, it's, it's very important. Um, and I think for me, it's to, it's to understand um, not just what we think is operating, but actually to talk to students, to, to see their point of view, their perspectives. Uh, what are their uh, criteria for selecting these colleges? And and what ways might these criteria be connected to their positions in life, whether it's based on race, class, or gender? I mean, so I think for me, it's just to provide a fuller understanding of the college choice process at the level of the individuals making these decisions. And so my research is based on in-depth interviews. It's about understanding how students from different social positions make sense of the social world. Uh, and, and this specific example in my book is really about how do students make sense of the transition uh, from high school to college. Uh, and we often, we often think about this transition as uh, you know, uh, a single point in their, in their lives, but the decision at this point is often accumulation of life experiences uh, and information uh, and networking that they have um, gathered over the course of not just their high school career, but pretty much essentially over the course of their lives. Uh, and that's just the impact that social class has over how we think about the social world. And so that's kind of my intervention is to really understand where students apply to college and think about what are these uh, causes of, of these decisions? So as that answer and your first answer um, hints at, right, we already have some theories of what these um, differences are, well, why students make different decisions. Um, and you very helpfully in the book uh, kind of 
bring together these elements of race, class, um, gender, kind of together to think about how they might actually make a difference. Because as you detail early in the book, there's kind of existing theories, right? Rational choice theory or social reproduction theory that seem to try and explain this exact thing. Um, but you talk about in the book that we need to broaden out from those um, and in particular propose a culture and cognition framework. Uh, would you mind telling us a bit more about this framework before we dive into the specifics findings from the interviews? Yeah, and I think um, before talking about this framework, I think it might, might be good to also talk about what are some of the previous uh, frameworks because uh, I think it highlights the different approach that I'm taking. Uh, and so typically, um, you, we see a lot of rational choice uh, frameworks uh, being used to explain how people make choices. The fact, the idea is that people are rational beings. They consider the uh, constant benefits of different options before uh, they make a decision. Um, and so that that particular theory really emphasizes the individual. The individual makes a decision based on what's in his or her best interest. Um, so that's one theory. The other theory is, is social reproduction theory. Um, this theory actually argues that people engage in, in decisions and behaviors that essentially reproduce their social position. Okay? So the idea is if you're middle class, uh, you are brought up in an environment where the decisions you make are going to help to ensure that you become middle class in the future. Uh, the same idea applies for uh, working class. I say if you're working class, social reproduction makes the case that you are in this environment where the, the choices and decisions you make help to reproduce your working class status. And so rational choice focuses a lot on the individual. Social reproduction focuses quite um, a bit on, on the environment. Like the environment plays a critical role in shaping how we think about the world, our opportunities, our barriers. Uh, and, and they both do, a, I, I would say, um, a sufficient job of giving us uh, explanations. Um, but I think a, a, a different theory was needed to bridge together this uh, focus on the individuals. You know, people are individuals that have agency, but they're also embedded within particular social and economic contexts. Uh, and I think neither, neither, of those, neither of those previous approaches uh, are able to make that sort of connection. And so my culture and cognition framework this is not actually my framework, but I'm drawn upon uh, new new understandings of, of, of culture to really think about how people's positions influence their culture. And, and when I talk about culture, I'm talking about kind of their worldviews uh, and how that ev eventually affects their decision. And so cultural cognition uh, argues that decision-making is neither about being deliberate, as in the case of rational choice, or being unconscious in, in social reproduction theory. I um, mean, so culture and cognition argues that it's, it's really about perception. If you want to know why people behave a particular way, you have to understand the meanings that they attribute to a particular action. Um, it's not necessarily about constant benefit. It's not just, it's not just about following uh, what they have been exposed to, but there's some agency, but that agency is often limited to the sort of meanings that they attribute to the social world. Um, and, and so I think cultural cognition helps to bridge the individual uh, and, and the social environment to really explain uh, the key question for my book, which is how do students decide where to uh, go to college? So some of the um, you know, more specific concepts that I utilize for 
um, from my culture connection framework is, uh, well, first of all, it's narratives. So narratives are stories that people have about the social world. Uh, and narratives uh, influence how students think about their future and influences um, the type of decisions they make. Uh, and I also use the concept of frame as well. So frame uh, refers to, um, you know, how people interpret uh, uh, certain aspects of the social work. What do they highlight? Uh, what do they emphasize? Uh, and so uh, as we talk about throughout this conversation, I'll definitely bring up these concepts to explain some of the findings uh, that come up in the book. In fact, I'd love to dive right in um, with frames in particular. Could you talk us through some of the frames that students draw on to decide whether or not to even think about going to college um, and kind of how and to what extent these frames differ depending on social class? Yeah, most definitely. So uh, a lot of uh, economists, they often think about decision to apply to college as based on a combination of cost and benefits. Uh, but what's interesting is that um, you know, the research finds that when it comes to going to college, uh, you know, low-income and working-class students seem to be much more rational uh, in the decision-making regarding whether they should pursue college. Because if we look at middle class, they apply to college uh, regardless of the cost and benefits. You know, because, uh, you know, let's say, for instance, if the benefits to a college degree has decreased substantially, uh, from one time period to the next, we don't see much change uh, in their behaviors, okay, in the behaviors of middle-class students. Uh, but the same is not true for low-income students. Low-income students, uh, working-class students, um, their decisions are much more rational in that when the uh, returns to a college education is not as high, they, they tend to not apply as much. And so um, my, my intervention here is that... Uh, whether or not students go to college is, is it's a matter of how they interpret that transition. So once again, it's the meanings that students attribute to that transition. And so in my study, what I find is that middle-class students uh, often take for granted that transition from, from high school to college. They don't think about it as, uh, you know, as a point where they need to deliberate about the different options. Um, it's something that's natural. It seems as, as a natural progression. It's something, it's just the next step of schooling. You don't think about it. You just go through with it. And so that's their frame. So they have a frame of higher education. It's just a natural progression of their schooling. Um, it's merely the next step in their educational journey. It's not a point where they need to stop and think about the different options and decide what they should pursue next. Uh, and so for them, that's why a lot of middle-class students just just go to college and then for low-income students, what I, uh, what I found is that they have a different frame. And so um, uh, low-income students often have this frame of, of college as one of multiple options. So because they grow up in families where um, they have family members that didn't go to college. Uh, many of them went straight to the labor force. Uh, you know, some of my uh, participants brought up the idea that um, you know, besides the labor market, they've seen other peers go uh, into the military. So for them, the transition from high school to college is framed differently. It's not a just a natural progression to college, but it's actually a key transitional point in their lives where they actually they actually have to think about what option is best for them. Should they follow the footsteps of many in their community and just uh, pursue a job in the labor market? 
Should they think about the military? Should they um, go to college? And so depending upon how students interpret the transition from high school to college, uh, this dictates whether they're engaged in a more deliberate process or it's not a decision at all. It's a non-decision for them. Hmm. So given that that's a very helpful explanation of the different frames that these students might have, could you take us through the rationales um, for this part of the decision-making process and how much these are impacted by class? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so frames, uh, once again, references how uh, different groups uh, interpret the, the transition uh, from high school to college. And then I use rationale as, as the reason that people um, uh, use to justify their reasoning for going to college. So, and what I found is that the when it comes to, to the rationales, there's actually a lot of overlap be, uh, amongst uh, the different social classes. So whether you're low income, you're first generation, working class or middle class, uh, all of these students have very similar rationales for why they should go to college. And I think this is in part due to the reasonings uh, that our society, our culture gives to students that you need to, do, you need to go to college for these purposes. Uh, so one of the rationale is College is about social mobility. So you go to college because you want a better life. Um, go to college, get an education, you get a good job, and you make a, a decent income. Uh, so that's one rationale. It's the social mobility rationale. Uh, the other rationale is the social satisfaction. Okay, and so this is the idea that um, you know college is it's a worthwhile experience. Um, it's not just about the academic, but um, it's a it's a it's it's a social experience. I can go there. I, I can enjoy my time, meet new people. And so not only is it useful for my future career, but I can actually enjoy uh, the, the process. Um, uh, and, and so those are just some, some of the uh, different rationales. Uh, and then one, of, one of the rationales that uh, I think was distinctive was the uh, academic, uh, I, I, what I call the academic evaluation rationale. Uh, this one was actually uh, brought up by my working class and low-income students. Uh, so for them, when they think about whether or not they should go to college, this reasoning came into play, and this was the evaluation of their academic credentials. Um, so for them, uh, a lot of low-income students are the first in their family to go to college, and so for them, they have to make sure that they actually have the credentials to get into college. So whether or not they should go to college depends on the likelihood that they'll get accepted. And so they actually had to think about their grades, uh, and other aspects of their um, qualifications to, uh, before they could commit to the idea of going to college. Uh, this rationale didn't come up for my middle-class students because they already assumed that they were, first of all, going to go to college, and second of all, get into college. Uh, and so even though there's some overlaps there, I think there are also, um, also kind of uh, unique differences uh, between these two groups when it comes to their their decision. Uh, and just going back to the idea of frames, because middle-class students already assume that they're going to go to college, the rationales that they bring up uh, are often used to justify their take-it-for-granted attitude. Um, it was less about why they went to college, and it's more about, okay, now I have a researcher asking me to justify my reasoning, so I'm going to bring up these, uh, these different explanations. Whereas for my low-income students, I do think these rationales actually were critical 
and and they're and they're thinking about whether or not they should go to college um, uh, because they had to be much more deliberate about should I go to college? Should I follow the footsteps of people in my community? Hmm. Very interesting, both in the similarities and differences, and also kind of to what extent the rationales are top of mind versus, oh, well, I guess I have to have an answer to that question. Um, so thank you for explaining that. Um, I'd love to continue this idea of sort of what things create, what impact. Uh, we've talked a little bit about, or I suppose we've mentioned the idea that, of course, besides social class, um, there's other aspects of one's identity and community that can make a difference on this decision-making process. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how we see race and cultural backgrounds, in addition to social class, impacting how students are thinking about this decision. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to kind of reference back, you know, when I talk about social class, I'm often often referencing like the, the resources, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge that students have access to because of their social class positions. Um, and social class position, uh, you know, I don't think it's separate from from culture. I think I think uh, we think about social class um, that your your access to opportunities, your access to experiences, your access to to knowledge. Uh, you know, it, it it impacts your culture and in the in the ways that you think about the social world. Um, you know, as I mentioned throughout the course of this conversation, uh, your students from different positions think about the world differently. They think about the transition from high school to college differently. They think about the purpose of college differently. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, there's, there's that connection between social class position, social class, the, the positioning, influencing how you think about the world. So it's not just a matter of, you have all these resources, therefore um, you're gonna make different decisions, but those resources, those experiences actually matter because they shape how you think about the social world. Um, and so I think there's that connection, very, a tight connection between uh, social class and, and culture. Um, when it comes to race, um, you know, I, I think for a lot, of, a lot of sociologists previously, we've tried to disentangle, um, you know, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of um, connection between race and gender. A lot of uh, racial minority groups are disadvantaged because they are also disadvantaged economically. And so we've been trying to disentangle that. Um, and so, of course, this book is not really about disentangling that. But when when I talk about race, I do want to focus on, let's say, specific aspects of race that aren't um, as connected to social class. And so, for instance, when I talk about how race actually matter in the specific case of my low income students, we do see um, a, a very, uh, I would say, a very distinct differences here with regards to, let's say, Asian Americans uh, and Hispanic students. So. The sample of my low-income students are primarily um, uh, Asian Americans, about half Asian Americans and a half Hispanic students. Uh, and so I think this is where I see um, differences in, in race uh, being most evident. And that for uh, Asian American students, they typically have older siblings that have gone to a four-year college. Uh, their parents are often embedded in, uh, in these ethnic networks um, that expose them to much more opportunities than uh, their Hispanic peers. Um, especially for my Hispanic students, the college process is very, I would say, very individual and very familial in that, uh, you know, they don't often have access to the ethnic resources 
that Asian American students have. Uh, and so that's one key difference is that Asian American students just have uh, access to a, 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 a greater set of, of ethnic resources. Um, for, uh, you know, I talked to some of my uh, Asian American students and they're talking about how their parents listen to, let's say, the ethnic radio, ethnic TV, and they're promoting uh, tutoring for college or this, these different programs to prepare the kids for college. Um, or they heard about these different types of colleges uh, from other parents. And so there's a wealth of knowledge that seems to exist in the ethnic networks that uh, surround Asian American students. So that's one part of it. I think the other part is, uh, as, as it's relevant to choosing college is, these top colleges are heavily white and Asian Americans. And so for a lot of my Asian American students, um, like the sense of belonging when it comes to their race was not a central factor in thinking about which college is appropriate for them. Uh, but this was actually a very big issue for a lot of my Hispanic students. They've uh, A couple of my students visited uh, Stanford University, uh, and one student actually mentioned that uh, the, the visit was actually a big turnoff for her and that um, she didn't feel like she belonged there just because of the, uh, the racial makeup of the students that she saw walking around the campus. Um, and so I think race uh, here impacts access to ethnic resource, but it also affects students' ability to, to, to see themselves belonging at these uh, institutions. And we're talking about these elite universities in America, uh, which tends to be, um, which tends to have uh, much more Asian Americans and white students. Hmm. Thank you for explaining um, the variation that you found with your students in terms of race and culture um, and kind of the wider community aspect as well. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you found um, when thinking about differences in gender. Yeah, so my, my findings in gender, um, I, I would say just, just reinforce um, previous research just about the idea that uh, female students tend uh to be much more restricted in, in their choices, whether it's about college or about extracurricular activities. Um, and so what I find is that a lot of the parents, especially the mothers, are hesitant uh, to allow their children uh, to apply to colleges far away from home or in places where they deem it to be um, unsafe, uh, dangerous. Um, and, and so a, a lot of female students have to navigate that extra um, restriction and, and thinking about their choices of, of college. And so, for instance, one student, um, he's uh, this student, she's from the, uh, the Bay Area, uh, and then um, she wanted to apply to a college that's about four to five hours down south in Los Angeles. Her mother grew up in that area, um, but of course her mother, who was low income, uh, grew up in a, in a tough neighborhood. Um, and so when the daughter was applying to college down in Los Angeles, the mother was hesitant to allow the daughter to apply to college down there because of her own experience. Um, and then we also have uh, an experience where uh, a female student, uh, this is a an Asian American female student, wanted to apply to out-of-state colleges and the parents wanted her to stay close to home. And so uh, they'll come up with different reasoning uh, to get her to restrict her choices of college uh, they mentioned things about her health issue and, you know, what's going to happen if she's far away from home. And so in doing so, they uh, make it more difficult for female students uh, to imagine 
uh, living far away from home for college. And so it imposes uh, spatial restrictions on where female students think uh, they can go to college. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and this idea of imposing restrictions, of um, limiting, you know, not necessarily saying you cannot apply here or else, but making it very clear that um, the parents feel like they should have a say in the decision of college and that other factors are part of it. Um, I was wondering if you could comment about a finding of yours that was quite interesting, the idea of perceived autonomy. How much autonomy do students think they have in choosing where they apply to? Um, you've given us an indication of kind of how that differs in terms of gender. Could you talk about this more broadly in terms of social class? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, this idea of perceived autonomy, I think, is so essential to um, explaining why uh, middle-class students are much more likely to apply to colleges across the United States, uh, to top colleges, uh, and why my uh, lower-income students are much more likely to restrict their choices of college to those close to home or to those uh, colleges within uh, the state of California. Um, and so what I find is that family is so essential to shaping how students think about how much autonomy they have. Uh, so for low-income students, they have this narrative of interdependence. Um, as I think about the transition from high school to college, college is not uh, a complete separation from family life. They think about this transition as interdependent, that as they go to college, their parents are going to, their families are going to still uh, need them to play some uh, role in the health and well being of the family, but also. That the, that the students are also going to need to rely upon the parents for social and emotional support. Uh, and this is not merely just a value, but uh, their experiences really shape how they think about their family as they go to college. So a lot of low-income students, um, as they talk about their upbringing uh, and, and as, as they talk about their decision and also their future, uh, they emphasize certain aspects that make this, uh, uh, that makes them have this narrative of interdependence. So low-income students often emphasize, um, many of the parents are immigrants, and so they emphasize the sacrifices that the parents have made to make sure that they're in a position to be successful. Uh, some students have actually had to uh, intervene on their family's behalf, whether it's uh, translating for their parents uh, uh, or uh, intervening on behalf of, of institutions. They've been very, very involved in, in family matters. Um, others, uh, you know, their parents, just like the female students, their parents actually uh, Im- impose restrictions upon them. And so, as they think, as they think about college, it's not really just uh, college. It's not just about choosing what's best for them. So, for the low-income students, choosing college is also about taking into account the real uh, and also perceived needs of of their family. And so. It reduces the autonomy that they have in thinking about where they can go to college. This is in contrast to the experience of middle-class students uh, who actually present a narrative of independence. Uh, They think of college as this is four years of their life away for their family for uh, academic and social uh, exploration. And so they perceive a lot of independence independence, a lot of autonomy in where they can go to college. This is not to say that their parents didn't actually impose any restrictions 
uh, middle-class parents do want their children to go to the uh, best college as possible. And so if a student decide that they want to apply to some unknown college, the parents would interject, uh, but it doesn't impact their ability to go anywhere across the United States. Uh, this sense of autonomy um, is attributable to the social class upbringing. Uh, a lot of students have been able to uh, go on vacation away from their local environment. And so as a result, they feel very comfortable at the prospect of living far away from home. Uh, their parents have been able to put them into uh, summer programs where they've been part of academic camps um, or other types of camps during the summer. And they've been able to uh, get out the house, uh, you know, be away for, for several weeks. And so it builds and sense uh, their confidence that they can uh, thrive in environments away from their parents. Uh, and a lot of students also mentioned that their parents give them um, a good sense of, of autonomy as well. Um, and so students would mention, you know, my parents uh, over the summer, they'll tell me what I want to uh, tell me. They'll ask me, what do I want to do? And then I'm able to choose my activities and they'll just pay for it. And so it seems like they're building a sense of uh, independence, sense of autonomy. Uh, and, and so when students think about the transition to college is an extension of that. It's, you know, the next four years of my life is really about me. Uh, it's an individual decision. It's about uh, what's in my best uh, self-interest. Uh, uh, and, and so because of this autonomy, uh, students are, are able to kind of essentially apply uh, to, to anywhere. But I think the most important um, uh, conclusion from this is just the importance of family upbringing and opportunities uh, and how that really shapes how individuals think about uh, the transition to college. And I would say even for... Even for my middle class students, this perceived autonomy is as much, it, of course, it, it's real because uh, they've gone through their life where they've been given a lot of autonomy, but it's also, I would, I would say it, it's also perceived as well. Um, my middle class students understand that they are being viewed by others as being dependent upon their parents, uh, given their social class background. And so when they're talking about the decision making, they're talking about who they are. They seek to make themselves unique. And so this narrative, I feel like it's not just a result of their objective circumstances, but it's also a result of them trying to distinguish themselves from other competitive applicants because they realize that college admissions, um, um, you know, the college admissions officers um, uh, are going to be evaluating the applicant or the, their applications a comparison to other highly qualified students. And so if other students are just as involved, just as qualified, how are these students going to make themselves stand out? And one way to do that is to emphasize their autonomy, that uh, they, they participate in activities, uh, you know, they get involved in extracurriculars uh, because it's their passion. Um, and they're making this decision because uh, it's their autonomy. Mm. That's a very key um, understanding of what's happening. And I'd love to sort of build off something you've mentioned once or twice now, this idea of uh, not just deciding whether to go to university, where to go, but also preparation, right? Because that's, of course, quite key for a number of reasons. So could you tell us about what you found in terms of what kinds of college preparation students 
from different social classes found to be the most valuable and kind of why they took different things away? Yeah, yeah. So how, how students uh, prepare for college um, relates back to my earlier point about how they frame the transition to college. Um, so for my low-income students, um, you know, going to college was a, a very tentative proposition. Uh, many of them are the first in their family to go to college, so they're not even sure if they're going to get into college. So as a result, college, college preparation for them uh, entail making sure that they have the credentials to get into college. So low-income students often focus on, on that aspect, and so uh, they frame college preparation as making sure that they are a well-rounded student. So to be well-rounded is uh, to excel in your courses, okay? So take the most rigorous course uh, possible at your high school, but also to be um, involved in extracurricular. So you, you're balanced with uh, academic, but also extracurricular activity. So that was the approach of low-income students. Um, they wanted to project to universities that they are qualified. Okay, that they're excelling academically, but that they're not just nerds, that they're also actively involved. They have, uh, uh, you know, they, they give back to the community. Uh, they have leadership skills. And I think this is the approach that a lot of students tend to take um, from my low-income students. Uh, this preparation is very different from that of my middle-class students. So going back to my earlier point, uh, middle-class students um, frame college as just the next uh, 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 the next step in their educational journey. Uh, for them, they assume that they are going to go to college and they're going to get into college. So preparation for them was not preparation for getting into college, but preparation for getting into the top colleges. And so because of this understanding of, of college, middle-class students frame college preparation as uh, distinguishing themselves uh, from the rest of, of, of other students. Okay, so it was, it was not really about preparing yourself to succeed in college, but it's about preparing yourself to stand out so that you can actually get into uh, the top colleges of your choice. Um, and so we definitely um, uh, see this difference, uh, but another difference also comes to just the, the type of ac activities that students accumulate outside of school uh, to prepare themselves for uh, for for college, uh, one one uh, uh, type of activities are, are internships, and so these are students working with um, organizations or, or or companies uh, when they are in high school. Um, and so, my middle class students just had a just had access to a, a wide variety of opportunities. They were able to intern for um, you know different companies. Uh, you know, medical companies, software companies, because either they're uh, through the connections of their parents or through um, finding opportunities on, on their own, uh, they were able to um, participate in a lot of community service uh, that took them to countries abroad. Um, uh, they participated uh, for my middle class students when it came to uh, taking the standardized tests uh, for, for college, like the SATs and the ACTs, many of them were able to rely on private tutors uh, for, uh, you know, for college. Um, and so the preparation for them is that, um, you know, 
outside of the classroom, outside of the courses, this is where the biggest disparity is. Low-income students often don't have access to private tutors. They don't have access to these community service projects that often require a, a substantial amount of financial resources. They don't have the social network to enable them to get into uh, internships uh, at these very prominent companies. Uh, and so I would say uh, when it comes to preparation, we see it differences in how they think about preparation, but also differences in the type of activities activities that they are able to accumulate uh, uh, in preparation for college. So far, we've been talking a lot of kind of what the students are thinking and experiencing and what role the families might play. I'd love to kind of bring in another set of actors, right? The, the schools themselves, right? The high schools that these kids are going to, um, maybe college counselors, maybe teachers. And um, a lot of the students you interviewed also spoke about college prep programs that they attended of various kinds, including, for example, visiting a campus. Um, what role did you find that these sort of actors that are not the student, that are not the parents, uh, what role do they play in shaping where students think it's possible or relevant to them to apply? Um, and how does this differ across social class? Yeah, so I'll start with the high school just because, uh, you know, high school are, is relevant for both groups of students. Um, you know, typically we think of high schools in terms of how teachers and counselors uh, influence where uh, students apply to college. Uh, you know, I think my, my argument here is, is that schools are just like families where they, they socialize students. Um, in the case of this book, they socialize students to have taste for particular types of college. So if you go to, uh, if you go to a, a middle-class high school, you're going to walk away after four years um, you know, desiring different types of colleges than someone who went to a low-income school uh, because of the socialization processes that happen. Uh, and they happen through a number of different actors. And you see it in teachers and counselors, but also their peers, uh, you know, where the peers are, their peers are applying to college, where alumni have applied to college, what, uh, what universities and college are recruiting. Um, and so the, we see a very big distinction uh, when it comes to the type of colleges that students are exposed to via their high school. Uh, and so when I talk to my middle-class uh, middle uh, students and I ask them to, tell me about the colleges that students at their school typically go to. They tell me it's all over the place. You know, it's across the U S uh, and they typically emphasize that these are top colleges. Um, you know, they have some Ivy league universities, uh, essentially just top colleges, different types of top colleges come to recruit at their high school. Uh, but also this is reinforced by the fact that they have uh, many peers who are applying to these colleges, uh, alumni have applied to these colleges. For them, um, the path to top colleges is very, uh, I would say, very standard, very familiar. Uh, others have done that, and so they're essentially following the footsteps of those who came before them. Uh, in the case of my uh, low-income students, um, you know, high school, I would say, had a, a, a much more minimal impact. Uh, these are high-achieving students. Uh, and so if they go to a low-income high school, the high school's job uh, is, is merely to graduate uh, students from high school. They're, they're, they're less focused on the high-achieving students who are far and few in between. Uh, they're much more focused on 
the general student population. Uh, and so the resources are, are much more about making sure that students uh, graduate from high school. Uh, and so as a result, these high achieving students don't get the resources they need to think about these top colleges. And so they're quite limited. Um, low income students, uh, they do have access, the high, these high achieving students, they do have access to college prep programs. And these programs are pivotal because unlike the high school, which is primarily focused on graduating students, these college prep programs are focusing on preparing students for success in college, but also exposing them to uh, different types of colleges. Uh, and so uh, these college prep programs are much more instrumental uh, in shaping students' choices of college. Uh, but, if, but even in these college prep programs, uh, they're still primarily focused on just getting students to college. So it's really, it was really about getting students to uh, attend colleges within the state of California or local colleges. Like any four-year college is sufficient. We just want to get our students to colleges. And even here, many of my high-achieving students don't get the resources they need because they are high-achieving. Uh, they should be thinking about the top colleges across California. Uh, but because these programs are limited in what they can provide, these high-achieving students also lose out when they do participate in these programs as well. Uh, whereas, you know, higher SES, uh, high-income students uh, benefit a great deal from the socialization that goes on in their high school, uh, low-income students often uh, face barriers in terms of thinking about what colleges are, uh, are appropriate for them. Uh, and so I think this also points to the, to the limitation of information as well. Um, because in the case of middle-class students, they're applying to these top colleges, not just because of information, but because of uh, personal connections to these colleges through their alumni, through their peers, uh, through college recruitment. Uh, and so as we think about how, you know, how do we get more low-income students into these top colleges, it just can't be about information because even for middle-class students, it's about socialization uh, that happens over several years in high school. And so what type of interventions are necessary? Uh, it has to be uh, a, some, some type of long-term intervention. It can't be at the moment they're thinking about applying to college that we intervene uh, because even for my middle-class students, these interventions are happening uh, across the, 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 their four years of high school. So I'd love to stay on that point for a moment um, and talk further about the kind of practical and policy implications of the findings we've discussed so far. And you go obviously into more detail and in the book, what should be done? Yeah. So um, I have a couple of, um, you know, implications that I think could be useful for universities, but also for any programs that are interested uh, in getting more uh, low-income students into uh, these top colleges. Um, one thing I want to emphasize uh, from my book is just the, the importance of opportunities. Uh, th these are equally qualified high school students, uh, and they have the credentials to make them very competitive applicants for the nation's top colleges. The main difference here is that low-income students are not applying to these top colleges. Uh, and this difference is due in part to um, the kind of opportunities that students have access to outside of their classes. As I mentioned, uh, middle-class students uh, have a lot of opportunities to 
get out uh, uh, to go on vacation, uh, to participate in programs that take them away from their family for several weeks at a time for them to actually get get a, get to explore different parts of, of our society, different parts of our country. Um, and so it makes them very comfortable. It makes them excited about the prospect of, of, of going on an adventure for four years. That's how they think about college. It's an adventure. It's an it's a opportunity for me to figure out who I am. Uh, so they have a different notion of going to college. Uh, these opportunities are not available for uh, the low-income students in my sample. So even when they do know about these colleges, they still have a lot of anxiety about going away from home. Are they going to be able to survive and thrive uh, in, these new, in these new environments far from the family? Um, and so I, I think we're able to provide more opportunities uh, outside of academics that enable uh, low-income students just to explore. It's just opportunities for explore, exploration so that they can build a sense of autonomy. Um, it can help them to think about these top colleges as not just appropriate, but also uh, desirable. Uh, so that's about closing the social class gap in opportunity and experiences. Because I think in our society, we focus a lot on closing the achievement gap. Okay, so we recognize that there is a big gap in terms of achievement and math and science and, and reading between low-income students and middle-class students. And so we devote a lot of resources into the classroom. This book is arguing that we also need to focus on what students do outside of the classroom, like during their summers, uh, give them opportunities to explore, to get outside of their local environment so that they have a different perspective. Um, so that's one intervention. The other intervention I want to uh, focus on is helping uh, low-income students craft narratives that can be, uh, they can make them more receptive to co top colleges. Um, I think experiences and opportunities will go a long way uh, in terms of helping make these students more receptive to top colleges. But it's also important to help these uh, low-income students shift their narratives from a narrative of interdependence uh, to a narrative that emphasizes that they're resilient, that they're in, their independence. Uh, of course, they've had to uh, overcome a lot of obstacles, uh, but that you know the fact that they've overcome those obstacles to become high achieving, that's what makes them, um, I think, resilient and uh, uniquely qualified for going to these top colleges. Uh, and so I, I think part of it is helping students to understand that your narrative uh, shouldn't just be a direct result of your circumstances, but you can create narratives uh, that make you more receptive to certain types of actions or, or behaviors. Uh, but it's really, it's about being intentional. It's about looking at your strength and what you, had to, what you have to overcome. Uh, because we see this happening amongst the middle-class population already. They're picking and choosing certain things to craft this narrative about who they are and where where they are going. And I think the same can be done uh, for our, our low-income students so that the, the narrative they have is not just a reflection of their objective circumstances, but it's also uh, a reflection of their agency. Uh, it's also a reflection of what they want to become uh, in, in the future. Uh, and so I think those are a couple of intervention, one focus on opportunity and experiences, and the other focusing on crafting narratives amongst my uh, low-income population that makes them more receptive to um, top colleges. And I think this would be so 
um, so useful for low-income students when they actually get to college because I think too often uh, a lot of low-income students think of college in the academic sense. You know, you go to college to do well in your courses, but this kind of framing often leaves out other opportunities in college that are just essential, just as essential for future success. Like, you know, go to study abroad, uh, take part in research opportunities, um, be part of internships, join different uh, student groups on campus to, to network. Um, and, and I think if students can think of, of college as, as more than just academics, as there are these different opportunities, it's about personal growth, it's about self-exploration, uh, I think low-income students will be able to take full advantage of these opportunities that the middle-class students are already taking advantage are taking advantage of. Hmm. Thank you for explaining um, the interventions that you've developed from your findings. I think that's going to be of interest to rather a lot of people. Um, and hopefully as well, the answer to my final question. Um, now that this book is done, people can go, of course, read it and all the things we've been discussing in more detail. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on the same topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, I feel like I'm, uh, I, I don't know if there's a midlife crisis for being a college professor. I'm still a very young professor. This is my fourth year uh, into my assistant professor job. Uh, but this dissertation, uh, this book is based on my dissertation. And, you know, we often get the advice that uh, a good dissertation is a finished dissertation. Uh, a great dissertation is a published uh, dissertation. This book is published, so I feel like I have a great dissertation. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like when I wrote, when I uh, did this project, there were a lot of uh, constraints. Um, it wasn't like perhaps the the thing the thing I was most passionate about, but it, I just stum stumbled upon upon this due to my circumstances, uh, and I worked on it. And I feel like I'm at a point where. I finished this book. Tenure seems um, like there's a high chance for that for me. And so I really want to take some time to think about w what's meaningful to me uh, as a researcher because I feel like we get caught up in this cycle where we're constantly producing just for the sake of the next step. And so if tenure is almost inevitable, that means I do have some time to think about what is it, what, what exactly is meaningful to me, what's meaningful to the communities that I care about, because this, this this dissertation was as much about my passion as it was about fulfilling the requirements to get my PhD, uh, to get a, a professor job. But now that I have that job and things are comfortable, I want to take time to think critically about what is it that I want to work on. I don't want to get caught up in this this trap of always finding something to work on. Because if I don't answer your, you know, let's say for instance, if I don't have anything that the your, your question is, what am I working on next? If I don't have a specific answer, then somehow I'm not productive. Um, and so it's still a struggle for me. I feel like I've looked at different projects. You know, some days I'm like, this is great. Some days, uh, uh, I don't know if it's meaningful, but maybe that's the process. It's just being able to um, consider different types of projects. Um, but I do feel it's so important for uh, professors and instructors to kind of... Um, just uh, get outside of like our academic lives as, as well to kind of see uh, you know, what's interesting, what's urgent in the social world uh, if you want to make a meaningful impact. And um, and so, I, yeah, I think for me, it's, I'm still trying to figure it out. I feel like I'm at a very a good position uh, in my life where I do have that 
that choice to, to decide what I want to study further. Uh, that's not going to be dependent upon a lot of these external factor. Uh, so I could still perhaps pursue something about uh, the ex experiences of low-income students. Something I've thought about is uh, just more perhaps research about the uh, just the the changing nature of higher education. Uh, you know, higher tuition. We have uh, students with higher rates of mental uh, distress, uh, lack of housing for students, and these are. These are things that we typically deal with uh, at the higher education level. Um, so I, I feel like I do have some ideas, um, and it might just be further exploration. Uh, and, and so I think that's where I'm going to take this summary, just to try to really figure it out. Uh, what's meaningful to me uh, and what's going to be impactful to uh, those communities uh, that I care about. Well, that sounds like a fascinating summer ahead of you. Um, while you are off exploring and thinking, of course, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Unequal Choices, How Social Class Shapes Where High Achieving Students Apply to College. Yang, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda, for this uh, converse conversation. I really enjoyed it and I hope the audience will find some of this information useful.